Um, so Esther and I, uh, we've been watching this series, uh, Baptiste, on the TV. don't know whether any of you have, have seen it. If you're not into watching sort of crime dramas, that's what it is. It's a crime drama. With, it's got a pretty involved plot, I think. We, we've been really loving it. But our, 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 one of our daughters, Edie, who's back home for a while, she's been getting a bit confused about what's going on. And it's hardly surprising, really, because she's only been watching it with us, and, and she's come in sort of halfway through the series. And we all know, don't we, it's, it's pretty tricky, isn't it, to pick up a storyline kind of ha- halfway through. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't know, you don't know the plot, you, you don't know the backstory, you, you don't know the main characters, uh, really, and so on. It, it can be rather confusing, can't it? And, you know, it seems to me that when it comes to us trying to investigate the Christian faith, you know, by, by coming along to church week by week, it can sometimes feel like you're joining a series part way through. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Um, you, you know, if, if you come in, you're not normally a churchgoer. You, you, you come in, maybe this has been your experience if you're, you're in that category this morning. You kind of know that there's something big and important going on here. Uh, you, you've picked up that this guy, Jesus, is somehow right at the, the center of it. Uh, if you've been here at, at Grace Church for even a short while, you'll probably have picked up that, that, that actually the whole of the Bible is pointing to him in, in, in various ways and to his gospel. That means his, his good news message. But who actually is this guy? Uh, and what kind of a person is he? And what does he want from me anyway? What, what does responding to him look like? Um, and, and actually, in order to try and, and help p- people who are, who are perhaps investigating the, the, the Christian faith, so asking those kinds of questions, we, we run courses here that are specifically designed to help you with that. We're going to get another one uh, going after the, the summer break. But over this week and next week, I wanted us to just to have a bit of a taster, if you like, of, of who Jesus is, of what he's like and what he's done. Um, and, and so we're, we're having, uh, and you've seen it in the kids' slot as well, we're having a dip into this uh, uh, second chapter of John over the next couple of weeks, beginning this week uh, with, with these uh, verses 1 to 11 or 1 to 12, uh, what I called the wine sign that Jesus performed at, at this, um, this wedding that he went to. So do keep that passage open, because I'm going to be referring uh, to it as we go through, so you'll probably find that, that helpful. And what we'll try and do is we'll try and do three things. We'll try and set the scene, uh, and we'll try and survey the sign, and we'll try and see the significance. So let's begin by setting the scene. So this is, like, this is the background to John's Gospel, so that we can see why he's written it, so that when it comes to surveying the sign and seeing the significance, it's hopefully not going to be like coming in partway through a box set. Okay, that, that's the idea. And actually the background here is really helpful, because John is writing his Gospel to give us evidence, evidence about who Jesus is, so that the evidence would, believe, would lead to two things, to belief and to life. And by that we mean eternal life, life with God forever. So um, there was a news report last year about a guy in Russia. His, his actual name was Sergei Torop. He used to be a traffic policeman in, in Russia. But he claimed in 1990 that he'd experienced a mystical revelation. It was coincidentally, a year after he lost lost his job uh, as a traffic officer. But he claimed he'd had this mystical revelation and had, in fact, been reborn as someone called Visarion, the returned Messiah, the Son of God, who who had been sent by God back to earth to teach mankind about the evils of war and, and the havoc that we're wreaking on the planet. And so he founded a religious movement. He called it the Church of the Last Testament. Um, which reportedly had a few thousand followers living in settlements in the Siberian forest. 
Uh, he was eventually detained uh, last year by the authorities and, and faced accusations of uh, grievous bodily harm and psychological violence. So basically the guy was a sort of weirdo cult leader. Um, what makes Jesus Christ substantially different from the weirdo Visarian? You know, both of them have lived in history. Both claimed to be the Son of God, his Messiah or his Christ, God's promised King. So, so why is Jesus Christ the most influential person in human history uh, with literally millions of followers across 2,000 years whilst this other guy is clearly seen as, the, I guess, the dangerous lunatic that he is? Why have millions of people believed Jesus' claim and actually given their lives over to him while this other claimant has simply been written off as, as a, an object of, of ridicule or of danger? Well, of course, it's all about the evidence isn't it? The evidence to support the claims of this so-called Visarian are frankly non-existent. But the evidence to support the claims of Jesus Christ are in fact hugely substantial. And that's the reason that John is writing his gospel account. He, he says it towards the end of his book, actually. Here's the verse in, in, in uh, John chapter 20 and verses 30 to 31, where he says, now Jesus did many other signs in, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, so John's stated aim in writing his gospel account is that those who read it would be brought to believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and so have life, eternal life, living with God forever. In other words, he's presenting the evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be, which is the Christ. Or, or the Messiah. Those two words, they, they mean the same thing. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word for, for God's anointed one, his, his, his rescuer and ruler, his king. And, and John is presenting the evidence that this is who Jesus is so that we would believe it. And, and that by believing it, we would have life with God forever. Do, do you see that? That's why he wants us to read his gospel so that he can show us the evidence that leads to belief and life. And if you, if you glance at that verse again, you'll notice that the primary evidence that John gives us to convince us about who Jesus is, is the evidence of what he's done. So Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in the book. But these, these signs are written so that you may believe that he's the Christ, the, the Son of God. Do, do you see? In, in other words, if you've been around at the time... Of, of Jesus, you could have seen what he did and so believed in him and, and so had life in him. In fact, that's what happened to old Doubting Thomas, isn't it? Do, do, do you remember? You might know the story of, of Doubting Thomas. You can read it when you get home if you like, because that's in John chapter 20 again. Um, and, and, and he says very famously to Jesus, doesn't he, in verse 25, I think it is of that chapter, I'm, I'm not going to believe unless I see it for myself. Which, of course, he does, because the risen Lord Jesus actually appears to him, verse 27 of that chapter, and says, okay, Thomas, look for yourself. Stick your fingers in my wounds and see. Which Thomas does, and, and he replies to Jesus, now fully convinced, my Lord and my God. See, Thomas was there, and he believed, and he had life in Christ, because he saw it for himself. But friends, here's the thing. Just because we were not around doesn't mean that we are at a disadvantage. Indeed, Jesus says the very, that exact thing to Thomas. 
Chapter 20, verse 29. Have you believed because you've seen me, Thomas? Well, blessed, happy are those who have not seen and yet believed. See, for Jesus, it's not the seeing that gives us life with him. It's the believing. And and John here has compiled some of the signs that, that Jesus did, some of the miracles, and he's written them down so that we who were not around and so couldn't see them can read and study the evidence for ourselves and so believe and so have life. In him, And actually, most of John's book is, is largely written around these signs that Jesus did. They're kind of significant events. Each one has a teaching point by Jesus attached to them. It either comes just before or just after the sign itself where he shows us what it means. And you can see this here, actually, in, in chapter 2, we read just now, where Jesus does the first ever of his signs, the wine sign, if you like, where he ch- changes uh, water into vast quantities of, of wine. But the signs are not here simply to show us kind of Jesus' power, right? He didn't do them as kind of, you know, magic tricks to impress the crowd or, or anything like that. No, no, Jesus did them and John records them so that we would see who Jesus is, that the fact that he does things that only God can do, so that we would listen to what he says as he explains what the signs mean in his teaching. That's the point. And, and so that by doing that, we would believe in him and have life with him. Do, do you see? I wonder, friends, whether you have ever read one of the Gospels. Have you read one of the Gospels? Did, did, did you know that the majority of people who write off Jesus have done so without ever having actually read one of the Gospel accounts that tell us who he is and what he's all about, which is crazy, really, isn't it? Because what John wants for you here as you read his gospel account is for you to have life. He wants you to be reconnected with the God who made you and loves you and to have life with him forever. And the way to have life with him is to believe in Jesus. That means to trust him for yourself as the promised Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed rescuer and and ruler and the son of God. That's why he's compiled together some of these signs to, to prove who he is. And, and what we've got here, beginning of chapter 2, is the first ever such sign that Jesus gave. So we've set the scene. Let's survey the sign. And you'll see that it starts with a wedding reception, doesn't it, in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. We're not actually told why Jesus was at the wedding. You know, some people have come up with different suggestions for that. One particularly silly one uh, I came across was that, was that he was there because they wanted like a local celebrity. You know, like a local teacher. That was in one of the commentaries. <laughs> but Jesus is only three days into his public ministry. He's only got five disciples so far. And he's nicked those from his cousin, John the Baptist. So, so he's, 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 he's hardly a big-name preacher, actually, at this point in his ministry, is it? Uh, but, but actually, I think it seems to me he's there at the wedding probably just because his mum is there. Um, if you notice the way John phrases that in verse 1, the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited along with his disciples. So, so Jesus' invitation seems to be linked with that of his mother. He's there on her account. So, so maybe it was a family wedding or a family friend's wedding or, or something like that. And, and actually, Jesus' mother seems to have some involvement in the catering, doesn't she? Because when the wine runs out, verse 3, she is notified and, and hence able to mention it to Jesus. And, and the fact that the wine at the wedding has run out is pretty much a huge social faux pas. 
Um, uh, wedding receptions in, in first century Palestine uh, uh, could often go on for several days. Uh, and the bridegroom was responsible for everything. All the food, all the wine, the whole lot was his responsibility to provide. So if the wine ran out, you know, just a short while in, uh, it was a total disaster. In fact, actually, it wasn't unknown for, for a bride's family to sort of sue the groom for negligence. Um, so this, this, was a, this was a big problem, and it appears that Mary, who may have been involved in the, in the catering in some way, has been told about this, and so she turns to Jesus, verse 3, and says to him, they have no wine. And, and she's not just stating a fact there. She's, she's clearly expecting Jesus to help. I don't think she's expecting him to do a miracle. So this was the first miraculous sign that Jesus did, verse 11 tells us. So I don't think she's expecting him to, to perform a miracle, but she clearly is expecting him to do something, isn't she? Like, like nip down to Aldi's or something, grab, grab some cheap plonk and, you know, before anybody notices. She's, she's probably attempting to do a little bit of sort of uh, parental authority uh, work here to see if, see if he can do something resourceful to, to dig her and the, and the groom out of this somewhat embarrassing situation that, that they're in. Um, which helps, I think, to explain his, his response in verse 4, because it kind of seems a bit sharp, doesn't it? Jesus replies, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That might seem a bit rude to us. Really, it's not. The, 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 the Greek word translated woman there is a bit softer than that. I think the kids' version said dear woman or, or something like that. So it is, it's, it's probably softer, more endearing than it comes across to us. Um, and the phrase, what does this have to do with me, actually could equally well be translated as something like, your concerns are not my concerns, or your purposes are not mine. So, so Jesus is giving her a, a bit of a gentle rebuke here, I think, um, and, and he does address her maybe in more formal tones than a son might address his mother. Um, but, but, but what he's doing as, as she attempts to kind of badger him into to doing something is he's just kind of trying to remind her that he has got different concerns from her. She wants him to do something to get their host out of this embarrassing situation. But he is letting her know that, that what he will do is not going to be motivated by her concerns, but by God's concerns. In other words, the the salvation plans and purposes of God, which are the reason why he came into the world. So, so he's kind of reminding his mother of his mission to, to do the saving will of God and, and that his time to do that has not yet come. Nevertheless, he will act, and, and in doing so, he'll reveal something of who he is and why he's come. And, and evidently, Mary perceives that he will help in some way, so she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So, so, so Mary knows that he will act, but she's been reminded that he will act on the basis of God's concerns and not her concerns, that he will act in order to reveal something of his identity and his mission, not simply to help out his mum or his, his host. So, so, so what does he do? Uh, verse 6 tells us there are six stone water jars nearby. They were used for, for ritual hand cleansing before people sat down to eat. Each one, 20 or 30 gallons in it. And, and then Jesus tells the servants to, to fill the jars with water, uh, which they did right to the brim, and then take them out, give it to the master of ceremonies who tastes it, and is blown away by how good this stuff is. Not water uh, anymore, but, but top-notch wine. So good. In fact, that the bridegroom, instead of facing embarrassment, you know, maybe a lawsuit um, for, for running out of wine, is kind of given a big slap on the back for his, his excellent wine. Um, 
and, and, uh, and we can see uh, the result there in verse 9, can't we? When the master of the feast tasted it, the water now become wine. Didn't know where it came from, although the servants knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you save the good wine until now. So it's like excellent result, isn't it? But what should we make of it? Um, you know, I mean, that, that cult leader, Vissarion, that I mentioned earlier on, he claimed all sorts of things. He claimed he could kill, heal cancer with a touch from his hand. You know, the, the world is full, isn't it, of, of snake oil salesmen, you know, claiming the miraculous, trying to deceive the gullible or the, or the vulnerable. But friends, it would be a mistake for us to treat the miracles of Jesus in the same way. Because remember, John says, these are signs. This is evidence to show us who Jesus is so that we might believe in him and have life in him. So let's not miss that by thinking of Jesus as simply some kind of first century cult leader. So we've set the scene, we've surveyed the sign. What we now need to do is see the significance. And actually you can see that in verse 11, can't you? So, so what did this first miracle of Jesus achieve? What was it for? John says this, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the purpose of Jesus performing this miracle was to show people his glory so that it would lead people to believe or or have faith or trust in him. So so if we're going to see the significance of the passage, we need to ask ourselves, don't we, how does this sign that Jesus did show us his glory and and so lead people to believe in him or or to trust him? How, How does it do that? And of course, one obvious way it does it is simply by the very fact of what Jesus did, didn't it? Because in front of witnesses, he changed water into vast quantities of excellent wine. And I don't know when the last time was you tried that. Um, But if you manage it, please let me know because I may well become your new best friend. Um, But of course, that's not going to happen, is it? It's not going to happen because people can't do that, can they? You know, some cult leader or some snake oil salesman or somebody might claim it of course but but usually witnesses to it have you noticed that are surprisingly a bit thin on the ground aren't they and so if you're here this morning somewhat skeptical that Jesus has done this then as a as an interested inquirer rather than as a a committed Christian it's perfectly understandable that you'd be skeptical because it's not something that mere people can do is it despite their claims Who but God could do a thing like that? No one could. But then the claim of Jesus is that he is God. He's the word made flesh and dwelling among us, as John puts it in chapter 1. In other words, he's God come in the flesh as the promised Messiah, as the saviour king. He's come to dwell among us in order to rescue us. So chapter 1 claims that he's God. And here he is in chapter 2 doing something that only God could do. He's displaying his glory before a wedding full of witnesses. But actually there's a lot more to it than that. 
isn't there? It's not just the fact of the sign that displays his glory. It's the nature of the sign as well. Because what Jesus has done is going to cause those who were present at the wedding, who are Jews, of course, to remember something that their Hebrew Bibles, our, our Old Testament scriptures, spoke about. Which is the picture that the Old Testament paints of God as the bridegroom of his people. See, um, marriage in, in the Bible is presented as a picture of the relationship that God wants between him and his people. And, and the Old Testament speaks of God as the bridegroom of his people. And so the one who, who one day in, in an age to come will restore his people to himself and provide for them the wedding feast to end all wedding feasts. So, so for example, um, uh, the prophet Isaiah, who's, who's writing 700 years before Jesus ever appears on the scene, he, he writes this in, in Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Uh, and then in verse 9 of the same chapter, and it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In other words, the Old Testament promises that God will come as the saviour and as the ultimate bridegroom and provide for his people the wedding feast to end all wedding feasts. And so as Jesus, back here in John 2, as Jesus at a wedding takes over the duty of the bridegroom and miraculously provides this vast quantity of, of gorgeous vintage aged wine... He's revealing his glory to them, isn't he? He's letting them know that he is the promised bridegroom, that the one the Old Testament spoke of, that the one they've been waiting for, the one come to save them and restore them to God. Do, do you see what he's doing? Do, do you see how this sign of Jesus at the wedding feast is his way of announcing his arrival as the promised Messiah? as the coming rescuer and ruler, the bridegroom of his people. I'm the one, he says. God in the flesh. It's, it's an incredible sign. So he displays his glory and his disciples believed in him. That, that's their, their response. They, they trust him. That They place their faith in him. And, and friend, I, I wonder how you feel about doing that this morning. How do you feel about doing that yourself this morning? Trust is not an easy thing to place, is it? We, we might place our trust in, in our friends or in institutions or even in members of our family, actually, and, and find that our trust in them is misplaced. They let us down. Trust isn't an easy thing to place. But, friends, that's not the case with Jesus. No, Jesus is utterly worthy of our trust. And we can see his disciples trusting in him here, can't we? And friends, you and I can trust in him too. And, and not just because of this one sign that we see him doing here, but because of the many signs that he does right through the book, which John writes down as evidence to point us to who he is so that we can trust him and have life in him. 
That's what all these signposts in John are about. They're about pointing to Jesus as God, God in the flesh, the trustworthy Son of God, the the coming Savior who loves you and will not let you down. In fact, so much so that he died for you. That's the reason that he came. He came to die, to die for you. Do do, do you remember that phrase Jesus used to his mother in in verse 4? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Well, you know, with that little phrase, my hour has not yet come, Jesus is hinting at what his mission is. It's a repeated phrase in in this gospel. John tells us this several times until at one point in in chapter 13, verse 1, John tells us, now the hour has come, the hour to depart out of this world to the Father. In other words, friends, Jesus' hour is the hour of his death. That's the direction in which the whole of Jesus' earthly life is heading. It's all heading towards his death. And that's because it's through his death on the cross that Jesus would pay the penalty for all of our sin. That that sin means our our rebellious attitude towards God. That results in in a thousand rebellious actions towards God and and which cuts us off from him. See, see friends, the, the Bible tells us that we have been created by God in order to be in a relationship with him. It's how he's designed us to be. But, but that's not enough for us. We, we don't want God to rule us very often, do we? We want to rule ourselves. We, we want to do it our way. And, and that's not just something that we learn to do. It's something in our nature. We're born like that. You, you can even see it in, in tiny children, can't you? you? Just try giving one toy to two kids. And watch what happens. It's carnage, isn't it? And, and tantrums. You, you don't need to teach those two children to be rebellious and grab the toy for themselves, do you? you? You won't need to train them to throw a paddy when the other child takes it off them. They'll do that all by themselves, won't they? It's in their nature. It's ingrained in the human heart. What parents spend all of our time doing is, is training children to share <laughs> and, and be selfless. And friends, it's really no different, is it, when we grow up? We find more sophisticated ways of getting our own way, don't we? Doing what we want, but actually it's still often me first, isn't it? And friends, we do it with God. We don't want his rule. We don't want to live our lives for him. We want to live them for ourselves. And so despite the fact that he's made us to be in a close relationship with him, under his loving rule, we kick him into touch. We live for ourselves instead. And, and, and so what we deserve, of course, for, for doing that is for God to give us what we want and cut himself off from us, which is exactly what the Bible says will happen. It's, it's, it's what, what the Bible describes as hell. That is what we're asking for, isn't it, when we want him to leave us alone. And it is what we will get, but for the lifeline that he throws us in the Lord Jesus. And, and, and this wedding reception in Cana, where, where Jesus first reveals his glory and shows us who he is, is just the start of that mission, which, uh, uh, which is why he says, my hour has not yet come. But it's a mission that will take him to his death on our behalf. So, friends, where does all that leave us? Well, it leaves us in the same position as those disciples in verse 11, doesn't it? Will we believe in him? Will we accept why he's come? And so will we trust him to, to, and, and make him our king or, or will we just keep trusting ourselves to, to run our own lives? 
Because, friends, that's what faith is. It's not a blind leap in the dark. It's believing in the evidence before us and putting our trust in the one who has come to give us life in him. And, friends, my recommendation is that if you haven't done that yet, that you investigate the evidence very closely before writing Jesus off. We've got some great material here to help you do that by reading one of the gospel accounts. John's gospel account here. We have a thing called the word one-to-one. Why not give it a go? Why not get to grips with who Jesus is and what he's done? Or, or even better, we, we, I mentioned earlier, we have a course here called Christianity Explored, which investigates the claims of Jesus in Mark's gospel. Come and have a chat with me. Give it a go. Because, friends, John is clear here that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the bridegroom come to die for us, his bride, so that we can live as God intended us to live, as he created us to live, in a close and intimate relationship with him, the God of the universe. And in an eternity, which is like the best wedding party you've ever seen. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that, uh, that Jesus' miracle here, like the, uh, the others in this gospel, They're no cheap tricks, they're no sleight of hand, um, but they're signs to reveal his glory, to show us who he is, that we might be led to believe in him and so have life in him. And, And Father, we pray that by your spirit you would stir our hearts so that we would see him clearly and respond to him appropriately. And we pray in his name.